This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we look back on a hundred years of the Cenotaph in central London. Lutchins filled a notebook with his very precise calculations, which is why the thing looks as perfect as it does, because he wanted, I think himself, to create an absolutely perfect object. We hear how this famous First World War Memorial was created. The Cenotaph was originally envisaged as being a temporary structure. It was originally created for Peace Day in July 1919. It was so popular that it was fairly swiftly decided to recreate it as a permanent structure. And how it's come to inspire the designs of other memorials to conflict all over the world. All that in just a few moments with our special guests, Dr Stephen Brindle and Professor Lucy Noakes. But first, here's a look ahead to what you can hear on future episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. Today, in the modern age, there are many, many different types of jousting. But English Heritage are proud to prevent authentic jousting, as it was, using records to tell these stories of these rock star knights. One of the things I'm fascinated about is archaeoastronomy, and this is a fantastic site to see that at work because of the alignment with the summer solstice. And it also sits within a World Heritage Site, and it puts the Iron Bridge in a category of some pretty esteemed monuments such as you know, Hadrian's Wall, Stonehenge, but also further afield. It really puts it right up there with the best of the best. Now, July 2019 marks a hundred years since the Cenotaph, the monument to those who fell in the Great War, was unveiled in central London. The original Cenotaph, and there were two which we'll touch on, was created for the Peace Day Parade, which took place on the 19th of July 1919. It was a government-declared bank holiday, designed to celebrate and mark the end of the First World War and the start of the peace process, after the signing of the Treaty of Versailles the previous month. Joining us to discuss this important national monument, we have two guests. And if I could get you both to introduce yourselves. I'm Professor Lucy Noakes. I'm Professor of Modern History at the University of Essex, where I hold the Chair in Modern History. I'm Dr Stephen Brindle of English Heritage. I'm a Senior Properties Historian in our Curatorial Department. Professor Noakes, if I can start with you, what is the Cenotaph and where is it? The Cenotaph is in Whitehall in central London, just up from the Houses of Parliament, about a five-minute walk from the Houses of Parliament. And it is the country's main war memorial. It's where ceremonies take place every Remembrance Sunday. It has a history that dates back 100 years, as Mm -hmm. we're covering today. Can you give us a bit of the history and why was it created Well, the Cenotaph was originally envisaged as being a temporary structure. It was originally created for Peace Day, for a Peace Day parade in July 1919. To mark the end of the First World War. Yes, to mark the end of the First World War. It's so popular. Over a million people visited it in the weeks following Peace Day, left flowers and wreaths at its base. It was so popular that it was fairly swiftly decided to recreate it as a permanent structure. And the Cenotaph that we have today was dedicated on November the 11th, 1920. So with the amount of dead in World War One, there was obviously a, a feeling from the government to memorialise the glorious dead, as it says on, on the Cenotaph. Where did that movement come from? 
War memorials were erected during the war. First is temporary street shrines. The first one that's recorded was in Hackney in, I think, 1915. And these, really? That's yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and these were kind of, most war memorials are created by local communities. So the cenotaph is fairly unusual in that it's erected by the imperial state. But the street shrines were informal memorials. They commemorated the names of the dead from that local street or from that local community. People would leave flowers there. They reminded people of who had died and thus which families might need support or might need comfort. They spring up all over the place, but I think they're important because they show us the ways that the First World War impacted on local communities, in part through the creation of PALS battalions, which recruited men from the same workplace or the same sporting club or the same little neighbourhood and who often went into battle together. So if they went into a battle with high deaths, like most famously Zachrington PALS up in Lancashire, many of whom were killed in the first day of the Battle of the Somme, local communities were really, really badly impacted by that. So that's the origins of war memorials for the First World War, anyway. Um, what did they look like, these early memorials? They took the form of a triptych, so three, three panels, and they really varied because they're created at the local community. The main thing about them is they listed the names of the men who died, and sometimes the names of men who'd served. They didn't always just list the dead. They listed the names of men who served from that local community. But I think what's important about them is they are locally created. When you look at the war memorials that we have now all over the country that originate in the aftermath of the First World War, a lot of them are very similar because a lot of them are bought out of catalogues, whereas the original ones, the street shrines, weren't. They were created by local people. I'm getting a sense then, Dr Brindle, of why towns, villages and cities across the country wanted to create something very central in a central place that could stand for all the glorious dead. Mm. You know quite a lot about the Cenotaph, obviously, and how it was constructed. Can you talk a little bit about, we had this wooden and plaster structure to start with, didn't we, prior to Peace Day? There's a very long history of temporary monuments built for funerals or for commemorative celebrations, which are sometimes called catafalques. A catafalque is like a plinth with something like a coffin on it, which might in a funeral be a real coffin or it might be a representation. The Greek word cenotaph means an empty tomb. And in the summer of 1919, after the Treaty of Versailles, the French state organised peace celebrations in Paris. And they had the idea of erecting a catafalque in the middle of a major street as a focus for grief. The empty tomb represented sort of every man, all of their their many, many dead soldiers. And Lloyd George was there and he saw this and he was deeply impressed. And he was the Prime Minister at the time. He was the Prime Minister, yeah. And so he asked Sir Edwin Lutyens, who was the most eminent architect in Britain at the time, to design a catafalque for the peace celebration of the parade which was going to be held in London in the summer of 1919. And in a few weeks, Lutyens produced a design, and his stroke of genius was to see that a catafalque at relatively low level wouldn't be particularly visible, especially in the context of huge crowds. Mm. Uh, And so his design elevated it on a sort of tall rectangular pier or pylon, this had to be made very quickly, and so Lutyens's design was executed in timber-framing canvas and painted to look like masonry. And the design, essentially, is a wide pedestal which tapers to a slightly narrower, quite tall pier, and on top of it, there is what is, if you look at it recognisably, a sarcophagus. 
a stone coffin with a stone wreath on top and there are wreaths uh, which again are sculpted at either end and all of this was in Lutchins's original temporary design and at that date there was no particular thought that this would be a permanent monument it was part of the mise-en-scene for this grand procession but there was something about its design which struck everyone who saw it as right and almost a million people came to see it And so it wasn't very long before the Ministry of Works and the government were asked by the government to organise construction of a permanent replacement. And of course, they had to go to Lutyens to design the permanent replacement. Did it exactly mirror the wooden and plaster version? Very nearly. Lutyens had designed his first temporary one in quite a hurry. And for the permanent one, he hadn't lost a child himself in the war, but he would certainly have known people who did, and he would have been very fully conscious of the need to provide something perfect. And he filled a notebook with calculations. The cenotaph as built is very, very precisely visually calculated. Lutyens was aware of the principles in classical architecture called entasis, which means that columns are slightly bulged in the middle to correct the optical illusion, which comes from the nature of our own vision, that a column which is in fact straight is actually slightly concave. So classical columns, slightly bowed outwards and tapered, and so the form of the cenotaph is slightly tapered in order for it to look perfect. Um, And if you projected all the vertical lines in it upwards, they would converge at a point about a 1,000 feet in the air, and all of the horizontals, similarly, aren't actually horizontal, they're they're very very slightly convex, and they are all segments of curves with a common radius about 900 feet below the ground. And so, obviously, all of the blocks in it, the straight lines, aren't actually exactly straight, which is why Lutyens filled a notebook with his very precise calculations, which is why the thing looks as perfect as it does, because he wanted, I think, himself to create an absolutely perfect object. But the more important point, I think, really, is its abstraction. I think maybe, Lucy, you'd like to talk about this. The abstract nature of it, yeah, I think that's really important because the cenotaph isn't just built to commemorate, to memorialise the British dead, it's the dead of the empire. Over one million men and some women have died. The idea that it's abstract, that as we said, cenotaph stands for, for an empty tomb, means that people could project onto it. It's not directly related, for example, to any particular group or to any religious affiliation. I think the idea of an empty tomb is really important, particularly as so many men were missing. So many bodies were not buried. I think over 200,000 are listed as just simply missing. Archaeological digs, I think, in France and Belgium are mm. constantly oh, yeah. finding remains. Yeah, yeah, they're still, they're still finding them. And then, of course, also the decision taken very early on in the war not to repatriate any of the dead. That's important. In previous wars, most bodies wouldn't have been brought back. In previous wars, the bodies of of most soldiers in battles like Waterloo, in Crimea, in South Africa, in the Boer War are oh, so far away. But also, they're not they're not important. They're mainly just buried in big pits. It was only the sons of the wealthy who were brought home because they could afford it. First World War. It's the first mass war by 1916 with conscription with a large number of people who can vote for the first time, it's really important that in order to maintain support for the war and a sense of kind of unity around the British Empire and the British state, that the idea that everybody is treated equally Mm. is really important. So the decision in 1915 
not to repatriate the bodies in some ways wouldn't have made much difference to most people because most people couldn't repatriate the bodies of their sons. It means that the wealthy can't afford to bring their sons or their husbands home, that they're going to lie with everybody else. So it was a national focal point and it had to be created because Mm. there was this outpouring of grief, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. Individual communities across the country were making local shrines, as Lucy said, but once the war was over and the scale of the appalling loss was clear, permanent memorials began to be erected quite soon after the war, but the cenotaph was one of the first. One of the striking things about it is that Lutyens and I think everyone else realised the need for it to be abstract, as Lucy says, so that it could be a universal symbol. And there's a striking difference here between the kind of memorials which were erected in small communities, like English villages, which very often you see churchyard memorials, which very often are crosses and they're explicitly Christian, because that was felt to be appropriate in the context of, of a church in the English countryside. But for cities like the Cenotaph, there seems to be an instinctive feeling that Christian symbolism would not be appropriate, because a memorial for a big city like the Cenotaph for the Empire as a whole, had to be for people of all faiths and none. And thus, in 1920, Lutyens was designing a monument for Southampton, and he designed something a bit rather like a version of the Cenotaph, only with more figurative sculpture. But the figurative sculpture, the emblem, the symbolism on it isn't Christian. And because the Cenotaph made such an impression... Lutyens was commissioned to design a great many more war memorials and he repeated its design on a number of occasions. So Manchester has a war memorial which is almost identical to the Whitehall Cenotaph, only it has the effigy of a soldier on top. And Hong Kong has a cenotaph which is almost identical to Whitehall and so does Auckland in New Zealand. So the universality of the design and the power of its sort of abstract form, I think, were apparent not just to people in Britain, but it inspired others around the world. It's interesting that on the side it says the glorious dead, but it doesn't mm. say the glorious war dead. I find that interesting that war isn't mentioned, but glorious is. Because it's not a victory memorial, it's a memorial to the dead. Previous war memorials, like the Marble Arch, and the Wellington Arch were both conceived as memorials to victory in the Napoleonic Wars, um, which they didn't do very effectively for a number of reasons. And the Arc de Triomphe in Paris is an arch of triumph, and they are recapitulations of the Roman idea of the triumphal arch. Mm-hmm. But that is the imperial state tooting its trumpet and saying, we've won. But there is nothing in such memorials about the human loss and the human sacrifice which their wars have cost. And I think, as Lucy says, by the time of the Great War, the sheer scale of the loss and the fact that society was becoming more democratic meant that that kind of triumphalist response to the war was simply not acceptable. It was so far out of kilter with most people's perception to know, well, we've won, but the loss has been terrible. And the loss emotionally outranked any feeling, I think, of joy and victory, and so it should. Yeah, so it's a sombre piece of abstract stone. I completely agree with Steve now, and I think it's also just worth adding that I think that the response to the temporary memorial in the Peace Day Parade was surprising to mm. the government. It was. Um, you mentioned that people would flock and oh, for weeks afterwards, put around bouquets a million, and around a million around people. It. Yeah, around a million mm. people came to visit, and I think that was surprising. Mm. It was, I think, by far and away the 
the most popular part in London, at least, of the Peace Day celebrations. And it's important to remember these are envisaged as a celebration or in celebration of victory and peace. They mark the, the signing of the Versailles Treaty in June um, 1919. So it's not long. It's not long afterwards. No. Um, but what most people take away from that is the commemoration of the dead. Because the, the British yeah, and the Empire's dead. Villages and towns and... Mm. Workforces were just decimated. Absolutely, Families. yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you mm. know, most people, unless your your son or your husband had died, usually in hospital in Britain, you didn't have a grave to visit. It was very very difficult for people for several years after the First World War to visit the battlefields and to visit the cemeteries that are being created by the Imperial War Graves Commission, the cenotaph, and then the local memorials gave people a place to grieve. They gave people a kind of a substitute grave to visit. So what mm. happened on Peace Day, July the 19th, 1919? Well, in London, the main element of Peace Day is a massive military parade. And some people weren't happy with that. Some people, some particularly returned veterans, saw it as too militaristic. They wanted it mm. to be celebrating peace rather than military military victory. But anyway, there's, there's, there's a massive parade of around 15,000 soldiers and the military leaders of um, the Pershing comes from, from the States, uh, Fock from France, Hague. They were parading through London and they prayed through Whitehall. This is important. This is what the cenotaph said because the cenotaph represents the dead who are kind of therefore incorporated into this parade. There are parties, there are concerts in London, parks, games and celebrations and kind of partying goes on late into the night. It's a bank holiday and this is also matched by parties and celebrations all over the country from Stornoway, right up in the Outer Hebrides, right down to Penzance in the far west of Cornwall. Most local communities have some form of celebration, usually incorporating a parade, but also drinking games, concerts as part of Peace Day. But Peace Day Parade, was it then repeated in subsequent years? Because I don't think we really celebrate it now, do we? No, when the permanent replacement for the cenotaph was inaugurated, it was for effectively the first Remembrance Day, which ever since then has been held on the second Sunday in November to remember the dead. And it was built in time to be inaugurated at the first of those parades which have passed into our national life. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So until the Second World War, Armistice Day is the main point of commemoration. So November the 11th, after the Second World War, that shifts to the Sunday closest to Armistice Day. But yes, the, the first the first parade, the first national marking of Armistice Day with the two-minute silence and all the commemoration and ceremony that we still have today is in 1920. And that's also the year when the body of the unknown soldier is interned in Westminster Abbey and his funeral procession goes past the cenotaph on its way and stops at the cenotaph and then carries right. on to Westminster Abbey, which is just five minutes walk away. And then the cenotaph is unveiled and dedicated on the same day. Why was Whitehall chosen as the location it for was, the cenotaph? Actually, it was it was fairly controversial. The Times, for example, were not very keen on Whitehall as the site of the permanent cenotaph. It's chosen for Peace Day because that's where the parade is going to march down. It's close to the nationals. It's it's you know Whitehall. It's a kind of national centre of of imperial government. It's also close to the Houses of Parliament and to Westminster Abbey. Centre of the civil service. It is absolutely yeah mm. absolutely. The Times were worried that it would be it would be endangered there by traffic because it's in the middle of the road. Yes. Um, they, they wanted it moved either to Horse Guards Parade or to Parliament Square, but there was a national wave of support for it staying where it was. I think because it starts in mm. Whitehall, people just want it kind of kept in Whitehall. 
at least it is in a, in a central focal point. I think that's one of the great things about its location, because Whitehall is a long straight street which links Trafalgar Square at the heart of the West End to Parliament Square, and it stands in the middle, so you see it in long views. Mm. And so it forms as much of a landmark as it can for something which is not inherently all that big. It's a very strategic location. It's close to Downing Street and Parliament and to Westminster Abbey on one of that sort of major axis of the West End. And as Lucy says, Whitehall also makes a processional route and that helped with the ceremonial use of it. The shape of the street lends itself to being either an open-air amphitheatre or to a, a processional route. Yeah. So I think it was, it was a well-selected site, despite the point about the traffic, and it, it works well ceremonially. So who owns the Cenotaph originally? Because I have to admit, <laughs> I didn't really know that it was in the care of English heritage. The Cenotaph belongs to the state, to the Crown. It's erected in what was public highway. It was erected by the state. It belongs to the nation. It was built by the Ministry of Works, as it then was, and the Ministry of Works' ultimate institutional descendant is English heritage, you might say. So we manage it on behalf of the Crown. We certainly don't own it. We've managed it since 1999 with a group of other sta- about 20 other statues and memorials in central London and the Wellington Arch and the Marble Arch, and they were transferred to our care by, I think it was then called the Department of National Heritage in 1999. So we've been responsible since 1999 simply for its care and for, for, for cleaning and maintenance. What do you think its legacy is as a structure? I think of the National Memorial Arboretum, which I believe opened in turn of the millennium, which is a very calm, large mm. place for people to go and think of people who've been lost in recent conflicts. Do you think mm. the Cenotaph is still the national focal point for war dead? I think so. I mean, November the 11th, uh, 2018, um, I was in London that day and it was the Cenotaph that people were going to still late into the afternoon mm. to lay wreaths, to take photos, to take selfies in front of it, to, to leave flowers and, and notes rather than the National Memorial Arboretum. Mm. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also, it still maintains its importance internationally because we do have to remember it was built to remember the Empire's dead, originally mm. not just the British dead. Well, in quite recent decades, there have been a great many more war memorials built, of course, to individual groups and nationalities. We've had the Women of World War Two the Canadian Memorial in Green Park, the New Zealand and Australian Memorials are both at Hyde Park Corner. Bomber um, Command as well. That's quite a new one, Bomber isn't it? the Bomber Command Memorial there, the separate RAF Memorial on the embankment. And so the instinct to commemorate has remained very strong ever since the Cenotaph was erected. And interestingly, in the last couple of decades, there have been another wave of monuments erected in London, the Commonwealth Memorial Gates on Constitution Hill is another example, which suggests that although the Cenotaph is a universal memorial, that individual groups and nationalities have felt the sacrifice of specific groups should be commemorated again. Although one of the interesting points about this is how the Cenotaph's principles of simplicity and abstraction have tended to be repeated in them, and there's a very interesting artistic dialogue between the Cenotaph and the Women of World War II Memorial, which is win the site of it up Whitehall. But I don't feel, I don't think anyone would feel this has undermined the Cenotaph's significance. 
I think what it says to me is that individual nationalities and groups and groups within the armed forces need a focus for their own commemoration. But we all, people who, who lost relatives, people who didn't, we all need something to remind us of the sacrifice and the terrible loss of those wars and something that stands as a universal symbol for all. And that, that is the cenotaph still. Going forward then, how do you think it will be remembered in another hundred years' time? I'm sure we all want to hope that those terrible experiences of the early 20th century were unique to the early 20th century because, given what's happened to weaponry since, any war on that scale might be terminal in a more absolute sense. I'm quite sure that in a hundred years' time the Cenotaph will still stand for war and the sacrifice of war and the sacrifice of those who fell in those terrible conflicts, but we have to hope that they will have passed more fully into history. But I think what we can say of absolute certainty is, is how important the Cenotaph and other war memorials and commemoration of the dead of the First World War still seems to be. We've just come out of the end of, mm. of four years of commemorating the centenary of the First World War, much of which focused around commemorating, remembering the dead. Really powerful works of art and powerful ceremonies of remembrance, not just at the Cenotaph, but also at Tiepval on the Somme in 2016. Jeremy Deller's We're Here Because We're Here, when the dead soldiers of the Battle of the Somme reappeared in British cities for a day. And um, I've been working, I've been working on a couple of projects over the last four years. So one's called Reflections on the Centenary of the First World War, where we've been looking back and thinking about the different ways that the war has been commemorated. And then um, another project called Gateways to the First World War, where I've been working with other historian colleagues at a range of British universities. And we're one of, of a number of what were called First World War engagement centres. And our role has been to work with community mm. groups, often funded by Heritage Lottery Fund, who've been working on projects to commemorate often their local communities role in the First World War, the impact of the First World War, and lots and lots of those focused around local war memorials. So there have been lots of projects with lots of people involved cleaning up local war memorials mm. or often researching the names of the dead of the local community. And they've often found people who weren't actually commemorated at the time and had their names added on. So it's been a really, really important... I think the commemoration and remembrance of the dead still seems to be really important, surprisingly, mm. actually, a yeah. hundred years on. And do you think... These recent centenaries um, marking the end of the Great War have done a good job making us realise how lucky we are to live in these times. Yes, I'm sure they have. I was um, greatly affected myself by that extraordinary event in the moat around the Tower of London, the Sea of Poppies, each one standing for one of the dead and makes blood red. And the sense of the sheer number, I thought that was a particularly powerful commemorative work of art. As Lucy says, the urge to commemorate is still very strong in society. Yeah, um, I think if, if the centenary can, can do one thing, if that one thing really is a never again, then that's, that's fantastic. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To find out more about the Cenotaph, head over to the English Heritage website and search for London War Memorials. Before you go, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe. We're back next week talking about Tintagel Castle's new landmark bridge in Cornwall. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.